Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello, I am Mike Brown. Are you? Yes, creator and host of the Dark Poutine <laughs> podcast. Welcome. And uh, here's Matthew again. I think you heard him mumbling over there already. Hi, everybody. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. I am so glad that you come and do this with me every week. Yeah, it's my fun Sunday thing to do. I, you know, I appreciate it a lot. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Now with less Reba McIntyre. Oh boy. <laughs> Look at the callback. <laughs> We're doing a two-parter and you're calling back to the previous episode. That's amazing. Oh dear. In our last episode, we learned a bit about the life and depraved early crimes of David Russell Williams, a 46-year-old decorated colonel and commander of the Canadian Forces Base CFB Trenton, Ontario, one of the largest and busiest Air Force bases in Canada. The Canadian military's rising star also had some dark secrets. Williams had been involved in dozens of instances of break, enter, and theft of women's undergarments in the communities in which he lived. The homeowners and police were unaware that many of these crimes had taken place. Many of the women presumed that their underwear had simply gone missing. They had no clue that they had been taken by someone whose fantasy life had taken a very dark turn. Williams felt powerful in the homes, taking photos as he pleasured himself with the most private possessions of women he didn't even know. Russell Williams would take their underwear home where, sexually aroused once again, he would take photos of himself as he modeled the items recalling his time in the homes of the women. The continued use of the garments thrilled Russell Williams and gave him a feeling of complete control. In September 2009, Williams' insatiable cravings for yet another sexual thrill demanded he take things a step further. Williams sexually assaulted two tweed women, forcibly confining them, fondling them as he snapped multiple photos of the terrified women after removing their clothes. While those events had been exciting for Williams, they were dry runs for what he would do next. In November 2009, Russell Williams committed his first murder. 
You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 197, Without Honor, The Crimes of Russell Williams, part two. Police had no idea who committed the two sexual assaults. They spent time knocking on doors in search of information that might lead them to the prowler people were now calling the Tweed Creeper. Jim Van Allen was called in again, this time to Tweed after the first assault on Joan. He was unaware that there had been underwear thefts in that community. None had been reported at that point. So, the profiler did not immediately connect the dots between the crime sprees committed more than 200 kilometers away from one another. From Applebee's A New Kind of Monster, quote, Van Allen examined the OPP's two-and-a-half-page report on the Jane Doe assault and was unsure whether he was dealing with fact or fiction. Over the years, he has encountered many false accusations of sexual assault, and his tentative conclusion was that this might be another one. There was no physical evidence of an intruder, no description of him, and Jane Doe had declined to seek any medical attention because she had not been raped or sexually penetrated. What also puzzled Van Allen was Jane Doe's account of the almost conciliatory way in which the intruder had spoken and behaved. She said, and this was a direct quote, The guy had told her to roll over on her tummy. I couldn't ever remember a sex offender using that phrase, roll over on your tummy. So I thought her disclosure was problematic. And it wasn't until the second one happened, the Lori Massacott assault, that we knew for sure that what she had said was probably true. End quote. Throughout October and November, Williams' clandestine raids into homes in the Tweed area continued. They were all leading up to what, in his mind, would be his next big mission. Williams had met military flight attendant 37-year-old Corporal Marie-France Comeau on a flight. Although Williams later denied it, sources claim that in September 2009, Marie-France, based at CFB Trenton, which was now under Williams' command, had given her commanding officer assistance with his French, as progression up the military ladder required a level of bilingualism that Russell had yet to achieve. It is believed that Williams had become obsessed with the pretty outgoing corporal during their interactions. Mary France Camot was born in Quebec City on March 19, 1972. She had followed her father and grandfather's lead into the military. Her grandfather had served and was decorated as a Spitfire pilot during World War II. Mary France thought employment in the military would fulfill her desires for job security and to travel, seeing the world while working first as a traffic technician and driving a forklift. She'd been stationed overseas and had spent time in large Germany, and after September 11, 2001, was sent to Afghanistan and spent a few years at the Canadian base there known as Camp Mirage, enduring rough conditions. From David A. Gibbs' book, Camouflaged Killer, quote, After ten years on the forces, Camo decided to park the forklift and become a flight attendant with 437 Squadron at 8-Wing Trenton. Then, in September 2009, after only six months on the job, she was handpicked to be a VIP flight attendant, serving such officials as the Canadian Prime Minister and other government dignitaries. It was here that she met Colonel David Russell Williams, the man who would later kill her. After driving by on a previous occasion to scout the property, on the night of November 17, 2009, at around 11 p.m., Russell Williams drove to Marie-France Camo's home, a small, red-brick-sided bungalow in the community of Brighton, Ontario. Mary france was away for work, 
She was assigned to the air crew, escorting Prime Minister Stephen Harper to Mumbai. She had been excited to finally go to India, a dream destination for her. She'd also recently accompanied the PM to Singapore and Japan. Williams, being her commanding officer, knew exactly where she would be. Under cover of darkness, Williams illegally entered her home. He didn't have to break in. One of the basement windows was ajar, so Russell Williams simply climbed through. He explored the house to make sure the woman lived alone, and then went into Mary Frances' bedroom. There, he discovered her bras, panties, and sex toys. He became aroused as he tried on some of Mary Frances' underwear and took some of it with him as he slithered out of the house and made his escape. A week later, Williams went back to Mary France Camo's house. From Appleby's A New Kind of Monster, quote, Late in the evening of Monday, November 23rd, he switched off his Blackberry, locked the door of his top-floor office at Eight Wing Headquarters in Trenton, and made the short trip to Brighton. He arrived there shortly before 11, and once again he parked his vehicle a few hundred yards away in a patch of woods and walked down Raglan Street to Camo's house, end quote. Williams entered the house the same way as he had before. He lurked in the unfinished basement by the furnace waiting for Mary France to come home so he could fulfill his mission. He was dressed in dark clothing, a sweatshirt and pants. He had a black cap on his head and a covering over the lower part of his face, leaving only his eyes uncovered. He'd learned from his first two assaults. This time, in his blue duffel bag, as well as his flashlight and his digital camera, he had added duct tape and rope to subdue his prey and sexual lubricant for the rest of what he was fantasizing about. When Mary France came home only a half hour later, Williams heard her upstairs talking on the phone with her boyfriend, and after that he presumed she was getting ready for bed. Mary France called out for one of her two cats, Bixby, who seemed to be missing. Bixby, in fact, was in the basement, staring at the intruder and meowing. When Mary France came down the stairs to look for Bixby, she not only found her cat but the creeper in the darkness. She screamed and the fight was on. Williams smashed Mary France over the head repeatedly with his flashlight. Eventually rendering her unconscious, Williams wrapped Mary France's head in duct tape, leaving only a small space for her to breathe. He also tied her up before he set to his brutal work. Over the next two hours, while taking video and photos, Williams raped and sadistically tortured Mary France, beating her viciously and berating her if she resisted him. Mary France, realizing she was in desperate trouble, begged for him not to kill her. Russell Williams, intoxicated with the power he had over the helpless woman, ignored her pleas. At one point, the young woman asked, If I die, could you tell my mother that I love her? Williams put a piece of duct tape over the breathing hole he'd left in the rest of the tape, and Mary France began to smother. Williams relished in watching her die. He wrapped her body in a duvet and left her in her bedroom. Then he cleaned up after himself and skittered off into the darkness. Just like nothing unusual had happened, he went to work at the base only a few hours later. How can he... Um... So, can you imagine... Okay, if you go down into your basement... Mm-hmm. And you, there's a stranger there yeah. that attacks you. Yeah. That's one thing. But I'm just imagining the whole, like, she, he was her boss, essentially, right? 
Um, yeah, he was the commanding officer of so, the... And they weren't in a relationship. There's probably no hint whatsoever that she would have been... F- Imagine the confusion of seeing him in the basement. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, you know, covered up and stuff like that, so... Yeah, but eventually, right? Like, yeah, yeah. why are you doing this to me? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I found it so sad that she's she kind of knew that she was going to be gone and saying that she wanted her mother to know that she loved her. Yeah. And then he's... Back at work. Just like, hmm, time to make the donuts. On November 25th, 30 hours after the murder, Paul Belanger, Mary France's boyfriend, discovered her body in her home. He had become concerned when Mary France did not show for a dinner date the night before and was not answering her phone all day. He went to the house and knocked on the door, and receiving no answer, he tried the door, but it was locked. The rear patio door was open, and after entering, he called for Mary France. He was devastated to find her deceased in her bedroom. Police searched the home, and among the evidence they found were bloody footprints outside. The footprints would not prove useful, though, as Williams had tossed the shoes he'd been wearing. He'd realized they were covered in Mary France's blood. There was, however, DNA in the sink, later linked to the killer, ironically left there during his cleanup efforts. The same day as the discovery of Mary Frances' body, Williams was officiating an annual fundraiser at CFB Trenton. How can you do that? I don't know. Like, internally, I wonder if he was feeling anything at all about this, or was he that good at compartmentalizing that it just didn't mean anything that he had murdered somebody and her body was found that day? I mean, I can't even, like, sneak a chocolate bar after I told my husband I'm going on a diet without, like fessing up to it an hour later. Yeah, because you feel bad. (laughs) If you want to read a really good book about guilt and awful feeling, and I'm sure you're well aware of this book because you lived in Russia for a time, Mm. Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Yeah. What an amazing book about the internal workings of somebody who commits a crime. That's very erudite of you. I was just going to mention from the cartoon Big Mouth how they have the guilt wizard. Yeah. That make the kids feel guilty about their bodies. And you want crime and punishment, and I'm going sort of foul-mouthed uh, cartoons. Crime and Punishment is my favorite book. Is it? It is. Following a post-mortem examination at the offices of the chief coroner in Toronto, the Northumberland OPP deemed the death of Marie-France Camot a homicide on Friday, November 27, 2009. The OPP said no further details on the cause of death were being released to preserve the integrity of the investigation as it moved forward. The OPP were not releasing details about suspects or whether anyone had been charged with the murder. Constable Chris Dewsbury said the murder was, quote, an isolated incident. Dewsbury also said, quote, there are no present issues with regards to public safety, end quote. We all know now that was not at all true. The investigators thought, at first, the murder had been committed by someone connected to Mary France, but they were looking under the wrong rocks. Kim Hill Chornaby said in the Facebook memorial for Mary France, quote, She was an absolutely beautiful person and a friend. She was always so happy and positive, and I am truly saddened by this horrible tragedy. Her smile will forever live on in the hearts of those who knew her and were lucky enough to call her a friend, end quote. From an Ottawa Citizen article, quote, Ellen Wood, who worked with Camo for six months as a flight attendant at CFB Trenton, described her as a wonderful person 
who was always smiling. She was fun, she was friendly, everybody liked her, said Wood. Thomas Warren, a private based at CFB Trenton, trained under Camo and knew her for about a year. She was one of the happiest people I have ever known in my life, he said. A Facebook memorial page for Camo described her as charming, intelligent, sparkly, bubbly, generous, beautiful, adorable, funny, reliable, and hardworking. Marie France's aunt, Jacinthe Guitar, later told a French-language news organization, quote, We are completely destroyed and we especially do not want to forget our Mary France. She was a girl who had a taste for challenges and adventures. She was a fighter. We are completely downcast and completely collapsed. I can hardly imagine what Mary France must have felt. Her mother had died five years prior. I can't imagine how she would have survived this. We will not give up. We will hardly recover from this ordeal. But for her, we will get up as Mary France would have liked. Yeah, I really like what she said about her niece here, mm-hmm. being someone who had a taste for challenges and adventures. Yeah. That's my, my kind of person, right? And she sounds like an amazing person. And when you read stuff like this, you just feel so bad for her and for her family. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I hope we're doing, doing her justice here. I hope so too. Another aunt, Edith Castongay, whom Mary France had spent time with in New Brunswick while growing up, told the Ottawa Citizen, I saw Mary France grow up. She was a simple girl who was full of plans. Her beautiful smile and enjoyment of life. How could one not love this child who became a beautiful woman? Then a monster destroyed everything. End quote. Part of Russell Williams' responsibilities as commander at CFB Trenton was to send condolences to family members of soldiers who died under his command. He did just that, sending an official letter of condolence to Ernie Camo on December 1st, 2009. It read, Dear Mr. Camo, I would like to take this opportunity on behalf of the men and women of Eight Wing Trenton to express my sincere condolences on the tragic death of your daughter. Mary France was a professional, caring, and compassionate woman who earned the respect of all with whom she came into contact. She set high standards for herself and others and was devoted to the well-being of those around her. Mary France made a lasting impact in Trenton and will be sorely missed by her many friends. Please let me know whether there is anything I can do to help you during this very difficult time. You and your family are in our thoughts and prayers. With our deepest sympathy, D.R. Williams Colonel, Wing Commander. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. 
Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. What are your thoughts, Matthew, is particularly about that letter to Mary, uh, to Mary France's father, Mr. Como? Okay, so if my kid, if I had one, was murdered. Yes. And I got a letter of condolence from where she worked. Mm-hmm. I'd like hold on to that. And, sure. And, and think of it as this wonderful thing of people caring and reaching out. Mm-hmm. Only for it to be stained later from them realizing it's from the murderer himself. Yeah. It's just, it's so sick. It's so twisted. So do you think he did it out of obligation or did he do it because... He did it out of obligation, but he probably yeah. liked doing it. Yeah, you think he probably got off on that? Well, we're seeing this pattern, right? Yeah. This this whole sort of people knowing but not knowing it's him. At this point, do you feel like he thought he was ever going to get caught? No, I think he I think he thought he was superhero. Yeah, like powerful man, going to be able to get away with this forever and... It's just so sad that they couldn't catch him before this. Mary France Camot was buried on December 4, 2009 at the National Military Cemetery in Ottawa. Her funeral was well attended by friends, family members, and members of the Canadian Armed Forces. Police were trying to figure out who'd murdered Mary France Camot. Cops focused on Mary France's current and former boyfriends. They were also canvassing door-to-door to see if anyone had seen anything around the time of Mary France's slaying. Probably out of fear of being caught and perhaps a bit of shock at what he'd actually done, for a time, William's break-in ceased. But in early 2010, the urges kicked into high gear again and Russell Williams began looking for his next target. His predator's eye fell on a 27-year-old resident of Belleville, Ontario, named Jessica Elizabeth Lloyd. Williams began stalking her. He claimed he'd first spotted her as he was driving by, that she'd been in her basement running on her treadmill and she'd caught his eye. This explanation seems unlikely as her house is not very close to the road and the basement windows aren't clearly visible from the street. A more logical explanation would be that Williams had spotted Jessica somewhere else and followed her to her home. Regardless of how he'd become aware of her, Russell Williams became obsessed with the pretty young woman. Jessica Lloyd had not arrived home yet on the evening of January 28, 2010. Russell Williams was already in the neighborhood, driving his Nissan Pathfinder to scope the place out. He was thinking that tonight would be the night. He noticed that Jessica's car was not in the driveway, so he took the opportunity to reconnoiter the interior of the house to ensure Jessica lived alone, that no man lived in the house with her. He passed the home, driving about 50 meters and pulled in, parking his SUV near a stand of trees marking the property line between Jessica's house and the property beside hers. Williams thought that no one would notice his vehicle there in the dark. He put on his gloves and using the shadows for cover and his flashlight to guide him, Williams crept around to the back of Jessica Lloyd's house. The patio door at the rear of the home was unlocked and he entered sneaking around the house, making mental notes of the home's layout as he went. When he was satisfied he'd gathered the intelligence that he needed, Williams left, back out the way he came, and returned to his SUV to wait for Jessica to arrive. 
She showed up around 9.30, alone, just as he'd hoped. Jessica soon went to bed, and minutes after seeing her bedroom light go out, Williams grabbed his duffel bag and made his move. He entered the same way as he had earlier, but now he knew the way to Jessica's room and stealthily hurried there, excited about what lay ahead. Jessica was asleep in her bed, and he relished in the feelings of power he had as he watched his next victim sleep for a few minutes before getting on with the mission. As he approached Jessica's bed, flashlight in hand, intent on bashing her in the skull, Jessica woke up with a start. He told her, don't scream. She didn't. Then said, lie down on your tummy. She did as she was told. He then blindfolded Jessica using duct tape and then bound her with the rope he had in his kit. After that, William set to work setting up his camera and tripod and using lamps from other rooms to enhance the lighting in the bedroom. He started taking pictures of the young woman right away. For the next three hours, Russell Williams violently sexually assaulted Jessica in her bed, rolling video and taking photos for the duration of the attack. Williams forced Jessica to perform sex acts on him. He'd been there for some time and knew that the sun would be coming up soon, so it was time to go, but he wasn't going alone this time. Williams cleaned up a bit, as he had at the scenes of the other assaults and Mary Camo's murder. All the while with her hands bound and the blindfold on, Williams dressed Jessica in clothes that he'd chosen for her from her wardrobe and dragged the frightened woman outside to his SUV still parked along the tree line. He kept telling her that if she did everything he asked that he would let her go. They drove to his home at 62 Cozy Cove Lane. There, after forcing Jessica to shower, the assault continued. They slept for a while with Jessica tied to him. And then when they woke, he assaulted her again and again over the next day. He forced Jessica to model lingerie items that he had stolen. According to a case study of D. Russell Williams by St. Francis Xavier University's Margot C. Watt, Ph.D., Williams, quote, clubbed Jessica Lloyd with his flashlight and strangled her. The killer carefully documented via photo and video all the details of Lloyd's torture and death, end quote. From David A. Gibbs' Camouflaged Killer, quote, He took three photographs of the body as it lay on the floor, taking care to pose his murderous flashlight next to her as though she were a hunter's trophy kill. He then cut the zip tie from around her neck to keep as a souvenir. A roll of duct tape was used to wrap her body into a tight fetal position. He cleaned the puddle of blood from the floor and then abandoned Jessica's body, cocooned in silver duct tape, sitting in the cold, unheated garage. He would come back to dispose of it later, but right now, the killer had no more time to waste. He quickly got dressed, grabbed a tote bag, and headed out to spend the rest of the night at his office. By now it was 9pm, and his flight to California at 5.30am would come soon enough. It was time to switch modes again. End quote. So again, here we are, murdered a second woman. She's laying in, in his garage. And then he's like, okay, time to put on my work face. There's not a lot of talk about it, but I wonder what people noticed about him around those times. Did they notice he was feeling upset about anything or did he act in any mm. strange way? Because usually there's post-defense behavior that people will tell 
people to look out for. Yeah. This guy seems like he's just very good at switching it on and off. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really scary. When Jessica Lloyd had not shown up for work the next day, her mother, Roxanne, got a phone call. She in turn called Jessica and received no answer. Within 30 minutes, Roxanne was at Jessica's house. Jessica's car, a black Grand Am, was in the driveway. Roxanne knocked on the door for a while before letting herself in. Jessica's purse and keys were there, as was her winter coat, but her daughter was not. Roxanne called her son Andy and he came over to help. It was Andy who noticed the footprints in the snow leading away from the house, one large pair and one smaller. There were tire tracks by the trees where the footprints stopped. They called police. Police arrived and began collecting evidence. Right away, they took cast of the tire tracks and the footprints. For the next week, the search was on for Jessica Lloyd. A missing poster with two photos of Jessica read, Missing, Jessica Lloyd, height 5 foot 5 inches tall, Weight 125 pounds, eyes green, hair dark brown. Please call Belleville Police or Andy Lloyd. If you have seen her, please help us find her. The search involved a huge amount of volunteers as well as community, provincial, and federal resources, including a search and rescue helicopter provided by the commander of CFB Trenton, none other than Colonel Russell Williams. Williams knew exactly where the young woman was. Three days after the murder, he returned from his California trip and came back to his home on Cozy Cove. He bundled Jessica's body into his car, drove to a wooded area on the outskirts of Tweed and dumped her there. From the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, Despite the efforts of police and hundreds of volunteers, after, the, after a week no trace of Jessica Lloyd had been found. However, witnesses reported seeing a silver-colored SUV parked in a field near Jessica Lloyd's house on the night of her disappearance. Police found tire tracks whose distinctive tread narrowed the range of potential suspect vehicles to a few, including the Nissan Pathfinder. On the evening of February 4th, Williams was stopped at an OPP checkpoint on Highway 37. While appearing to be looking for drunk drivers, Officers asked occupants of vehicles questions pertinent to the search for Lloyd and examined tires. Williams said he was in a hurry because he had a sick child at home. During the brief roadside interrogation, officers saw that the tread of Williams' tires matched those found in the field. From that moment, Russell Williams was under police surveillance. End quote. Williams was back home in Ottawa on the afternoon of February 7, 2010 when Sergeant Jim Smythe of the OPP called and asked Williams to come in for an interview to, quote, tie up some loose ends. Williams readily agreed and said he'd come in right away. The interview began around three that afternoon. At the outset, Russell was cocky, cavalier, and joking with Sergeant Smythe. Over the next few hours, the OPP sergeant put on a masterclass in suspect interviewing. The entirety of the interview can be viewed on YouTube via links we'll share in the show notes for this episode. Williams said he did not want a lawyer as the interview kicked off. After gaining the, suspect, after gaining the suspected killer's confidence, Smith hit Williams with the evidence about the tire tracks in the snow beside Jessica Lloyd's matching the tires on his Pathfinder 
as well as other things, including his DNA. Williams had even worn the same shoes to the interview as he'd worn on the night he'd abducted Jessica Lloyd, abducted and killed Jessica Lloyd. This was not lost on Smythe, who told Williams they would need his shoes. Smythe told him that the search that search warrants were being executed at both of his homes. Williams' body language changes from open jovial from an open open jovial demeanor. At Williams' body language changes from an open jovial demeanor at the beginning to a deflated, downcast man with his arms crossed as he came closer to confession. Russell Russell Williams expressed some concerns. Smith continued pressing. Smith Smythe continued pressing his suspect until he gave him what he wanted. Here's some audio. Note. I've edited out long silences and enhanced volume in parts for pace and clarity. Talk about perception. My only two immediate concerns from a perception perspective are what my wife must be going through right now. Yeah. And the impact this is going to have on the Canadian forces. Where do we go? Russ, is there anything you want from me? Is there anything you want me to explain? Is there something missing that you're struggling with that I can shed some light on for you? I'm struggling with how upset my life is right now. Russ, what are you looking for? I'm concerned that they're tearing apart my wife's brand new house. So am I. But if nobody tells them what's there and what's not, they don't have any choice. Computers will be brought to Microsoft in California. They'll be, they'll be picked apart. You can't erase things from computers. It doesn't happen. I'm sure you've seen that. I'm sure that's pretty common knowledge these days. It just doesn't happen. They sell programs that uh, to try and help people clean their computers of stuff, and our guys are pulling that stuff out all the time. The FBI is pulling that stuff out all the time. This investigation will end up costing no less than $10 million. Easy. And they will say no to nothing. Any request? This major case manager makes on this case. They've already been told. It's approved. Don't even bother asking. So what am I doing, Russ? I put my best foot forward here for you, but I really have. I don't, I don't know what else to do to, to make, make you understand the impact of what's happening here. Do we talk? Minimize the impact on my wife. So do I. So how do we do that? Well, we start by telling the truth. Okay. Okay. So where is she? Get him out. 
he's so concerned about his wife and what she's that she's going to be upset with him. He's murdered two people that he doesn't even really allude to. I mean, I feel bad for his wife. She, sure. She, she, she knew nothing at all. How horrifying. But dude, you don't want to upset your wife. Don't bloody well murder people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he was just, his head was reeling there. He could tell, he could tell when he's like, oh shit, the stuff on my computer that I tried to get rid of. Yeah. You can, you can, you, can, you know what he's doing right there. He's like, yep. you're thinking of all the nasties that he used to have on there. Yeah. He had it very well cataloged. Got a map. With those words, Russell Williams confessed. He showed Smythe where he had dumped Jessica and for another six hours they talked. It all came pouring out. Everything. The house breaking, the underwear thefts, the sexual assaults, the murders. Williams even told them where to find his hard drives of carefully cataloged images and videos, the stashes of underwear, and even a detailed logbook he'd kept of his crimes. From the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, The searches of Williams' properties turned up his camera, a duffel bag containing a black cat, a manual for lockpicking, and boxes and pillowcase stuffed with underwear and lingerie. Hidden in the basement ceiling of the Ottawa house were two computer hard drives containing expertly concealed records of Williams' activities as a sexual predator over a two-year period. Video clips and nearly 3,000 photographs included depictions of the Tweed assaults and the murders of Camo and Lloyd. There were also detailed accounts of his break-ins and a meticulously compiled inventory of all the items he'd stolen. End quote. Williams had stolen around 1,400 pieces of clothing, most of it underwear and lingerie, and kept them in bags at his residences. His goose was cooked. During his confession on February 7, 2010, Williams wrote letters to his surviving sexual assault victims, the family members of Marie-France Camot and Jessica Lloyd, and his wife, from a later article seen in the Calgary Herald, written to one of his sexual assault victims. I apologize for having traumatized you the way I did. No doubt you've felt a bit easier now that I've been caught. Russ Williams. Written to another of his sexual assault victims. I'm sorry for having hurt you the way I did. I really hope that the discussion we had has helped you turn your life around a bit. You seem like a bright woman who could do much better for herself. I do hope that you find a way to succeed. Russ Williams Written to the mother of murder victim Jessica Lloyd Mrs. Lloyd, you won't believe me, I know, but I am sorry for having taken your daughter from you. Jessica was a beautiful, gentle young woman, as you know. I know she loved you very much. She told me so, again and again. I can tell you that she did not suspect that the end was coming. Jessica was happy because she believed she was going home. I know that you have already had what looks like a lot of pain in your life. I am sorry to have caused you much more. Russ Williams Written to the father of murder victim Mary France Camot. Mr. Camot, I am sorry for having taken your daughter Mary France from you. I know you won't be able to believe me, but it's true. Mary France has been deeply missed by all that knew her. Russ Williams out of all the notes he wrote that day, Williams seems to show the most feeling in his letter to his wife, Mary Elizabeth Harriman. Dearest Mary Elizabeth, I love you, sweet Ponge. I am so very sorry for having hurt you like this. I know you'll take care of sweet Rosie, 
his cat. I love you, Russ. Mm, he's just trying to minimize his possible sentencing here. I think so too, but I don't sense any emotion in anything that he has written. It's all just sort of, here's what I think people will expect me to write. Uh, the only time that I see anything that has any sort of reality to it is when he says stuff about his wife. Like he's more concerned about her feelings than anybody else's in this whole business. Mm. And she, she's going to be hurt by what he did, but she is not even close. Her hurt is not even close to what these families yeah. have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty horrendous. This one made me so crazy yeah. reading and writing about this one. On February 8, 2010, Williams was charged with murder, sexual assault, and forcible confinement. He would later be charged with numerous counts of break and enter as well. Police services across Canada had a look at the possibility that Williams had been involved in other unsolved homicide cases involving young women in the areas he'd previously been stationed. They were not able to tie him to any serious crimes that he had not already admitted to. He spent the next eight months in Quint Detention Center in Napanee, Ontario, from which he made several court appearances by way of a video link between the detention center and the courthouse. There would be no trial. From Margot C. Watt, Ph.D., and her case study of Russell Williams. In April 2010, while incarcerated, Williams was placed on suicide watch after he tried to kill himself by wedging a stuffed cardboard toilet paper roll down his throat. After his aborted suicide attempt and a short-lived hunger strike, he remained in solitary confinement under 24-hour watch, end quote. Russell Williams pleaded guilty to all the charges on October 18, 2010. His defense team argued that Williams had not been in his right mind at the time of his crimes, and that should be taken into consideration during his sentencing. They claimed that he had been adversely affected by a drug called prednisone that he'd recently started taking for pain caused by arthritis. Prednisone, made by a number of drug companies, is a generic prescription drug that has been prescribed since the 1950s. I've taken it myself. I didn't murder anybody. There was evidence that his personality had changed due to chronic pain and the medications. However, the belief was that they, in and of themselves, were not significant enough to have led Williams to do all the horrific things he did. Evidence presented by the Crown revealed that Williams also had pedophilic tendencies. He'd stolen underwear of girls as young as nine years old. Following court proceedings, evidence emerged to indicate that he also possessed child abuse images. As a condition of his plea bargain, however, he was not charged with anything to do with those images. Williams spoke at his sentencing. He said, Your Honor, I stand before you indescribably ashamed. I know the crimes I have committed have traumatized many people. He continued, The family and friends of Marie-France Camot and Jessica Lloyd in particular have suffered and continue to suffer profound, desperate pain and sorrow as a result of what I've done. End quote. Williams said he understood the hatred expressed in court the day before and admitted that it had been palpable throughout the week. I deeply regret the harm I know I've caused, he said. He continued, I committed despicable crimes, Your Honor, 
and in the process betrayed my family, my friends and colleagues, and the Canadian forces, end quote. Before delivering his sentence, Justice Scott said nothing surprises him anymore and that he believed William's apology was sincere. Fortunately for all, the nature of these crimes are very rare in our society. The depths of depravity demonstrated by Russell Williams have no equal, Scott said. Williams was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for 25 years. He was also registered as a sex offender. Williams' sentence also includes that he be prohibited for life from possessing firearm or any other weapon, that he submit DNA samples to the police data bank, that he pay a $100 victim surcharge for each charge for a total of $8,800, which he later failed to pay, even though he had the money and the fine went to collections. Andy Lloyd, Jessica's brother, said of Williams after the sentence, As long as he dies in jail, I'm happy. People were now referring to Russell Williams as Colonel Kink, a play on the Nazi colonel in Hogan's Heroes. The Canadian Armed Forces were embarrassed that someone with such a respected post as Russell Williams could ever be involved in this horrendous crime spree. Williams was stripped of rank and dismissed from the Canadian Forces for service misconduct. In an unusual move, the disgraced commander's uniform was burned and his decorations were destroyed. The Cozy Cove community reacted. Larry Jones, a neighbor of Williams, who'd been at one time a person of interest in the sexual assault on Lori Massacott, was probably one of the most vocal. From Post Media News, quote, The Tweed, Ontario man who lived beside Colonel Russell Williams on Cozy Cove Lane wants his neighbor's cottage bulldozed into the ground. Larry Jones, 66, said the home now stands as a monument to Williams' heinous crimes. I wish they'd take the house down, he told the Ottawa citizen in a telephone interview after reading accounts of Williams' abduction, rape, and murder of Jessica Lloyd, 27. Just looking out the window now, it looks like a monument to Russ Williams, and it's a horror story. Just a real bad horror story. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who'd flown with the colonel several times, commented on Williams' sentencing. Harper said, Our thoughts, our prayers, our hearts obviously go out to the victims and to their families. Also, our thoughts go out to all the members of the Canadian forces who knew the commander and who have felt very badly wounded and betrayed by all of this, end quote. What really made Russell Williams into the thing that he became is unknown. A case study of Russell Williams by Margot C. Watt, Ph.D., indicates that according to the DSM-5, Russell Williams could meet the criteria for a number of possible psychiatric diagnoses. These diagnoses include paraphilic disorders such as transvestic disorder, sexual sadism, pedophilia, exclusive type, as well as personality disorders such as narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and avoidant personality disorder. He did not, however, meet the criteria to be deemed a psychopath. He's done a lot of awful things, Mm. but he's not a psychopath. He's not an unfeeling person. He has feelings about it. Yeah, he just made these choices. Yeah. Bonkers. Yeah. There was a lot going on with this guy, but it's interesting what the DSM-5 calls a disorder. I don't know. Uh, We... (laughs) 
We have problems with some of the language of that last quote, let's just say. Saying that you want to dress up in clothing that is not of your assigned gender. Uh, I don't know if that is a disorder. I might be misunderstanding. No, it's not a disorder. I think maybe the disorder bit is he was breaking into people's houses to do it. Right? Yeah. Russell Williams' wife divorced him, but that did not prevent her being named in two multi-million dollar civil lawsuits that were filed against Williams. One was brought forward by Jane Doe, who we've called Joan, and the other by the family of Jessica Lloyd. Both were settled with undisclosed financial payments in 2014. Russell Williams is doing his time at the Maximum Security Prison at Port Cartier in Quebec. Something that disgusts many Canadians is the fact that Williams currently collects a $60,000 annual military pension. In May 2010, he and his wife also split their real estate holdings, leaving Williams the sole owner of the cottage in Tweed and his wife the sole owner of their Ottawa townhouse. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 197, Without Honor, The Crimes of Russell Williams, part two. Total lack of honor. Total. I could have done three parts, honestly, uh, on this story because there was so much. I had to leave out a lot of detail that's available to you if you really want it. Some of it was so shocking that I just didn't feel I needed to put it in there. There are transcripts of this time that he spent with both of these women who he murdered because he captured it all on video. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to know either. No, I mean, it's, it, it's not necessary no, in the storytelling. To, to get the point. Yeah. yeah, but if you're curious, I mean, there are all kinds of books and stuff out there that will expand on it to the point that uh, you're able to read about that, if you really want. I'll include them in the show notes. You know, it's interesting. I I kind of heard about this story in the news, mm-hmm. but all I, all I heard was broke into people's houses, murdered a few people, mm-hmm. was in the army or whatever. And I just never really paid attention to the... You were in the UK at the time, were oh, you? Oh, was I? Okay. Yeah. So it would have been... Uh, so you would have heard sort of an international version Tid- of the story. International tidbits, yeah. Yeah. Here in Canada, we heard uh, quite a lot about it. Yeah, I can imagine. Obviously. And if you Google it, it's going to... You're going to fall down a rabbit hole of yeah. information. All right. I guess it's time to move on to voicemails. Voicemail. 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 That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. And let's check out our first voicemail for this week. Hi, Mike and Matthew. It's Angela calling from Keswick, Ontario. Uh, just wanted to say, Mike, I absolutely love your book. Um, I'm having a hard time putting it down. I mean, I'm eating my dinner reading it. Um, needless to say, my dishes might be suffering just a tad. <laughs> um, but anywho, um, I'm talking to my grandmother because my grandparent, my grandmother and uh, my, basically my, whole, my mother's side of the family lives in a little town called Matawaxa, which is not that far from Wilno. And uh, I asked my grandmother, because my grandfather used to frequent the Wilno Tavern quite often, 
give us the new people. Well, apparently my grandfather did know Basil, and he used to actually sit down and just have a few drinks with them and then watch do his rounds around the, the tavern. Um, also, too, I was uh, telling a co-worker about your podcast and uh, and whatnot, and he actually told me that uh, his brother studied accounting with Paul Bernardo in the University of uh of Toronto there, and uh, I was like, you're kidding me, right? I'm in the accounting field, my co-worker's in the accounting field, and he said, oh, yeah. He goes, he was a nice, quiet guy. He used to get notes off of my brother all the time. It was a little class of about 20 to 30 people. So, um, yeah, I was just like, you're kidding me. So, of course, you know, I had to, you know, pick a beer, like, you know, whatever, and then he told me his other brother was actually on the jury, uh, was part of the jury selection for the Bernardo case, um, but... He had college exams, so or university exams, so he ended up not being able to. But anywho, guys, um, love Matthew doing uh, a couple of his own episodes there. That is awesome. Um, and go take a shit in your hat. Well, thank you so much. And she was referring to the Basil Barutsky episode where Basil Barutsky, what a jerk that guy mm. was. Anyway, um, and Did she says she's from Keswick. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a near like Simcoe, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I uh, yeah, I've never been. I might have been, but if I did, I drove through it quickly. Mm. I don't know if I was there. But um she mentioned also Paul Bernardo going to university. And by this time you've already heard the uh you've already heard the Russell Williams episode, so you know that her coworker who went to school with mm. Paul Bernardo also went to school with with, <laughs> with another serial with another killer. serial killer. So crazy, isn't it nuts? Thank you for calling in. Yes, thank you. I like that message. I did too. Let's listen to another one. Uh, hi, Dark Fifteen. I was just calling. I uh, really love the show. It's super great. Um, have a lot of fun. It got me through a really rough time a couple years back where I was looking for work and sometimes your voice is the company I had. I had a small correction from the most recent episode. He said that basketball was invented in Canada by an American. It's actually the reverse. Um, and I know this because I was just at, at his hometown in Almont this past weekend and it was his birthday. They had a little statue up with him and the statue had a birthday hat and a little balloon. Uh, so for Dr. James Smith's birthday, was just this past November 6th. Thanks, and uh, have a good day. Well, that's good. A Canadian in America invented it. Yeah. So funny. So funny that she like happened to happened to be like doing that just when we recorded it. it yeah, exactly. That was kind of that's funny. Great. Yeah, we usually don't really care about corrections, but that one. But was, that's a cool correction, that's a right? Cool because one, it yeah. was it wasn't correcting like what we've done. It was correcting. Or, yeah. <laughs> or like if you want to call in and correct me on my pronunciation of poutine, <laughs> you can go take a shit, shit in, in your, your hat. hat. <laughs> yeah, because. There are regional pronunciations of things, folks. Different place names will be will be pronounced regionally in different ways. So, so I'm glad she shared that. Yeah, though. tough bananas. If you don't like now it, now I know. Though I like that. <laughs> there you go. There was a Canadian. That's awesome. Hot. And here is our last one. Looks like a short one. Hey guys, this is Jessica from Louisville, Kentucky, and I just have to say, I'm a little behind, but I love the podcast. And to that person out there that says the show isn't as good as before, it's 
just as good. And Matthew is my spirit animal. So you should make him your permanent host and get over how you got burned. And for all those Canadians out there, go shit in your hat. And for all those Americans, go fuck yourself. <laughs> get, get over I how I got it. burned. I'm, I'm so over it. And Matthew is the permanent co-host. You're really, really far behind. She's catching up. She must be catching up. Excellent. Anyway, that's kind of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Where did she say she's from? Louisville, Kentucky. I, I loved how that rolled off her tongue. Louisville. Louisville. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I want to go to Kentucky. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Next up, it's time for Patreon and Donut Money Donors. I'm looking forward to this one. Yay. Let's see who we had this week. So from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Saskabush, we have Melissa Clausen. Melissa Clausen from Saskatoon. Hello, Melissa. I love Saskatoon berry pie. Mm-hmm. What do you think Melissa Clausen does there in Saskatoon? The flattest and sort of most rectangular of all the provinces. Yeah, but, but Saskatoon is a nice town. Yeah. It's like Paris of the North. Paris of the North. I have never been to Saskatoon. I went to Regina. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, but Saskatoon is lovely. I like Regina. I think she works at the nice hotel there. What's that? I don't know. There's a nice one. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter. I think matter. it's like one of the Fairmonts. Oh, yeah. Fairmonts are usually very nice. Yeah, I think she, she I think she runs the Fairmont. Oh, she runs the Fairmont. Yeah, well, there you she go. puts little cameras behind mirrors in the bathrooms. Oh, I was going to say, please invite us to the <laughs> Fairmont until you said that. <laughs> what was that movie? Remember that movie where somebody built a building and he could go behind, like, all the bathrooms are one-way mirrors? Sliver. Was that what it was? Yeah, okay. it was one of the Baldwin brothers as well, and Sharon Stone. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I think she got the idea from there. Just kidding. I'm sure you would never do something like that. D. Uh, next up from Brandon, Manitoba, Sarah Wallace. Hello, Sarah Wallace. Thank you. And what does Sarah do there in Brandon, Manitoba? In Brandon, Manitoba? Brandon, Manitoba. She I, must do something. I think she owns a car dealership. Oh, what kind of cars does she sell? Uh, Bristol's. What the heck? Is that a UK yeah, thing? They look like brogues on wheels. Oh, like a shoe? Yeah. Wow, that's kind of weird. They're kind of James Bondy and brogy. yeah. I would it, like that. It started as a, they made airplanes mm -hmm. in, of all places, Bristol. Okay. And then got into cars. And if I'm ever super rich, I want, I want a little Bristol. Oh, cool. Yeah. So well, she runs a Bristol dealership in Brandon. I'm sure there's 10 of them. She hasn't sold much lately. Yeah, well. The right-hand drive confuses people. Exactly. And finally, as far as Patreon goes. Patreon. From Edmonton, Alberta, we have Kim wilson Vay. Hello, Kim wilson Vay. And what does Kim do there in Edmonton, Alberta, other than go to the West Edmonton Mall? She works at Commonwealth Stadium. Oh, really? Yeah. And what does she do at Commonwealth Announcer. Stadium? Oh, 
<laughs> I was going to, I was going to do something rude about the Oilers, but every time I do, I get in trouble. Someone gives me a hard time. Yes. The Oilers won a lot. And I was a huge Oilers fan when Gretzky was there. Are Oilers hockey? Because that at Commonwealth Stadium is not hockey. It's, Are you Canadian again? It's, I never got into hockey. Commonwealth Stadium isn't hockey. It's where the, their football team plays. Well, that teaches me. There you go. The Edmonton, I I don't think they're called the Edmonton Eskimos. No, anymore. it changed it to like, I don't know, some sort of mammal, like bison or. <laughs> that shows you how much we like the CFL here on Dark Poutine. Neither <laughs> of us are paying any attention to the CFL. I really, really loathe it. Anyway, she's an Edmonton Bison's announcer on, at, uh, <laughs> at the Commonwealth the Stadium. Edmonton Bison. <laughs> so let's move on to some Donut Money donors. Uh, this week, we heard from Sue Helm, and Sue says, Always enjoy this podcast. Great host and subject matter, respectful and thorough. Thank you. Wow. A, a review in the... That was great. That is great. I think she gave you five stars there. She Yeah, it sounds like a five-star Thank review. You. Thank you, Sue Helm. And what does Sue Helm... Well, first of all, where does Sue Helm live? Wyoming. She lives in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Near uh, Devil's Tower in Wyoming? Exactly. Oh, interesting. So she was probably an extra in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? No, she was one of the main main actors. Oh, one of the aliens? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like one of the ones that come down and help Richard Dreyfus into the... Bum, 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 hello, human race. <laughs> yeah, yes. that was kind of fun. Well, thank you, Sue, for all your acting prowess in that fantastic movie. I want to say one thing to you, Sue. Sure. Do, 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 do. We have Amanda Ambrise from Alvord, Texas, and she says, Hi, Mike and Matthew. Thank you both for the stories and commentary. Thank you both so much for the stories and commentary you give us each week. On top of that, online community, the online community is amazing, and I really appreciate the positive environment. Finding others who I can connect with and relate to so well has helped my mental health. Mine too. Knowing I can post a million pics of my pups, Barkley and Eli, and my cats, Draco and Tommy, and others will be thrilled to comment and like. I can do the same with others' pets too. Is great. That I can do the same, and I can do the same with others' pets too. It's a great feeling. Thank you again, Mandy. Well, there you go. Thanks, Mandy. And what does Mandy do there in Alvord, Texas? She runs a watermelon farm. I didn't know they grew watermelons in Texas, but I guess so. Well, actually, Alvord was very famous for it until the Great Depression, when the, it was a bit of a dust bowl. But yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Matthew is a, he's right on top of all the geographical things and I, economical. I, I just really like watermelon. <laughs> so do I. I love it. I like spitting the seeds. It's kind of fun. Spit. Yeah, but you can't anymore. It's only seedless now, isn't it? No, are they? Almost always. That's ridiculous. Bring back the seeds, as I say. Bring back the seeds. Bring me back some watermelon seeds. And that's it. Okay. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you haven't gotten yours yet, 
please order my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. You can find it from a link on the Dark Poutine website, darkpoutine.com, where we also have other cool stuff like show notes and a link to our store, which I'm switching up. I I want the shower curtain. Please take the time. (laughs) Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye. Her name is Elsbeth. Elsbeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.